Well, welcome to uh, another podcast today. I wanted to talk about a movie called Les Miserables. You know, The Miserables. Les Miserables, Les Miserables, however you want to pronounce it. It's a very interesting story. And it's really a story about revolution. But within every story, there are multiple stories. There are characters, there are people's lives, real lives. And in the struggle for any revolution or any freedom fighter, there is the characteristics of the idea of what you're fighting for, the justification for the fight, the legality of the fight, and the spirit of the fight. And this particular version of Les Miserables with Liam Neeson and Jeffrey Rush, 1998, you see two contrasting, are they antagonists or protagonists? Well, they they are both, each of them are both. And I think in our lives, we all are both antagonists and protagonists. We start off mostly as antagonists, almost 99.99999% of the time and become protagonists and hopefully don't live long enough to revert back to an antagonist, right? So the antagonist tends to be the one that's causing all the trouble, or the one that's stirring up things and the protagonist tends to be the one that's fighting the antagonist and trying to do what's right. And in those characteristics of our life, we start off saying, no, 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 I don't wanna share with my brother, right? We start off as the antagonist. We're the ones stirring up trouble, not wanting to play along, not wanting to get along, not wanting to go along. We're just wrong. And then the protagonist is probably that able son, the one that you killed. The one that is giving God what he wants, all of his heart, and the one who's killed by the jealousy or envy of his brother. And we go through life mostly as antagonists, really stirring up all kinds of trouble until righteous judgment gets a hold of us. Righteous correction, rebuke, rebuke and correction. You go into timeout. You go up to your room, you're grounded, rebuke, correction, or spank across your butt, not across your face, across your butt. And these these ideas help to shape us to know this is wrong. This produces a negative result when I do this. When I do this, daddy barks at me, roars at me. When I do this, mother sends me to time out. When I do this, I go to bed without having dessert. Not without having food. You feed your children, but you don't give them that extra dessert, that little sweet treat. If I do this, my master hit me over the top of my nose with a rolled up newspaper, what we used to do with dogs. Hit them on top of their nose, let them know they're doing what's wrong and they put their tail between their legs and walk off. They know not to do that. So the training and the discipline, spare the rod, spoil the child. So 
we learn in life what the law is, the law of our parents, the law in the school. I've got punished in school. They used to put a dunce cap on your head. When you got punished, they put a, a, a white paper uh, shaped cone on your head, humiliate you, put you in the corner in the class or keep you after school in detention hall to teach you not to rebel, not to cause trouble. Maybe this consequence and this punishment will be so humiliating, you'll change. The letter of the law. And there are those children who are disciplined, not because of the threat of detention or the cone on the head. There are those children who out of the love of the law, like David, your law, O oh Lord, do I love, I meditate on it day and night. And the average Christian, he delivered us from the law. We are the grace. As if grace just showed up when Jesus showed up. Well, that's someone who doesn't know the Bible. Well, not, forget not knowing the Bible. That's just someone who doesn't know God. God is infinite before time, after time, in time, no time. God simply is. And everything that is always is. It's in him. There was always grace. There was always love. There was always mercy. There was always salvation. There was always the spirit. David said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and he prophesied. There's always the spirit. There's always mercy. Hezekiah, your life is going to be required of you. You're going to die. Oh, Lord, please. Oh, mercy. Okay. 15 more years. There's always grace. There's always mercy. Always was and always is. The law in life, like in the movie Les Miserables, you see that there is an adherence to law. And if there is no punishment, if there is no consequence, then why should I obey? If you don't tell me I'm going to get a $500 ticket for being in the carpool lane, well, I'll go into the carpool lane. If you don't tell me that I'm going to go to jail or be executed for murder, well, I'm going to murder. If you don't tell me I'm going to be arrested for going into Walmart and stealing a television set that I don't own, well, I'm going to go in and sue. There's no consequence. If you remove the consequence of the law, remove the consequence, you have chaos and anarchy. And I'm sure the dark night would prove that as well. The law is good. The law is good and perfect. The law is not the problem. It's the lawbreakers. And so you see in the movie Les Miserables, one man who is a lover of the law because he came from lawlessness. He recognized if his mother and father had been lawful people, he would not have had the heritage of calling lawless lawbreakers his mother and father. He wanted to get as far removed from his mother and father as possible. God bless him. He became a lover of the law. And he met this man doing his work as a probation officer in the prison. Another man who, unlike him, did not choose a righteous path. This man was born of unrighteous people, and he chose a righteous path. This convict chose a wicked path. So the prisoner, the convict, 
his name Jean Valjean, played by Liam Neeson, gets released after 19 years and he tries to start his life again. But back in those days, when you were a convict, there was something called a yellow slip. You were like a sex offender that had to introduce yourself everywhere you go as a convict, which all uh, truth uh, would prevent you from getting a job and really prevent you from being rehabilitated and starting a life again. So the movie begins with him just laying on a bench and a woman comes and says, well, you can't sleep here. Have you tried the inn? He says, no, I'm a convict. Nobody's going to open their door for me. Nobody's going to let me in. And she says, well, why don't you go over there? And she points to a door where a priest lives with his wife. And, you know, Jean Valjean have nothing to lose. He goes and he knocks on the door in the middle of the night. And he says, listen, I'm a convict. I stole. I'm wanted. I'm a violent man. I gotta go to the probation officer. You don't want me to come in, but can I have some food? And the priest says, well, come in. And Jean Valjean argues. He says, no, you don't want me to come in. I'm a convict. Don't you know I'm, a, I'm the bad guy? <laughs> and the priest opens his home. And Jean Valjean goes in. They're having a meal together. And Jean is hungry. He's devouring the food. And he tells the priest, how do you know I'm not going to kill you? And the priest laughs back and says, how do you know I'm not going to kill you? See, that priest really had the spirit of the law. He had love in him. And he saw that Jean Valjean was hurt. And despite the fact he was a convict, read, tagged, and labeled by society to be a criminal, he gave them a chance. He even gave him a bed for the night. And Jean Valjean, though, while he was sleeping, he had a nightmare. He woke up and he realized, well, what the heck, I'm a criminal. What do I have going on for me? So I'm going to go tomorrow to that parole officer, and then what? I can't get a job, so, okay, I, I report, and then what? I'm not going to have any food. So he decides to steal. From where? From the one place <laughs> that he was welcome, the priest's home. So he picks a set of silverware, and lo and behold, the priest wakes up, catches him, he hits the priest, knocks him out, and escapes. And the next morning, the cops show up at the priest's home. They found Jean Valjean. They caught him and they bring him back. And of course, the wife of the priest, <laughs> she's crying over the silverware. And the priest says, ah, don't worry, we'll just use the wooden spoons. The wife, right? It's always the women. They're about the material. The priest was like, I don't care. So the cops bring him back and they said, you're not going to believe this. This guy we caught, this convict, said you gave it to him. And he goes, why, yes. And he goes, Jean Valjean, I'm very angry with you. You forgot to take the candle post. And Jean Valjean was like, oh? <laughs> he, he does not expect any mercy. The guy opens his door. You go in. You steal his silverware. You punch him in the face. You escape. And the cops bring you back. And what does the priest do? Oh, he didn't take it. I gave it to him. And then he says, but you forgot this. Here, take this also. And Jean Valjean stands there puzzled. He's like, wait, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And I just love the priest's response. He says, listen, with these silver items, I have redeemed you. I have brought you back from the devil and I have sent you back to God. Hallelujah. He has been redeemed by the priest to return to God. And that moment with such amazing grace and compassion, changed his entire 
life. Up until that point, thief, criminal, convict, me against the world. But that one act of kindness by the priest was a catapult that changed not just his life, but everyone else's in that ripple effect that he has encountered throughout his entire life. And that is just incredible. And you have to remember, what's the deeper message of that, really? Yeah. The deeper message is a man who, as you said, kept reminding people of who he was because that's what he was told he was. And that's what he knew in his mind he was. Not only am I a criminal, you tell me I'm a criminal, so I'm going to live like a criminal. I'm going to be a criminal. You don't think I'm worth it. I don't think I'm worth it. So I will be worthless. Because it starts in your own mind. The redemption really exceeds even that of what the priest did. And it more is about what John Banjan did. He, for the first time, saw two things. One, that he could be worthy of forgiveness and redemption. And two, that someone would see him more than what he saw himself as. What? I'm worthless? And you're telling me um, I can be made worthy and I can be forgiven when I can't forgive myself. But at that moment, the reason why he was able to forgive himself, because he felt a debt to the priest, the priest who had sacrificed his wealth for Jean Vaughn's spiritual health. And that's what, he, that's what a kinsman redeemer, see, now you are in debt to the kinsman redeemer. It's best to be indebted to a righteous man than an unrighteous man. It's best to owe a righteous man than to owe a scoundrel. So when you have a man like this, wow, this righteous man sees me worthy. How do I pay this back? How do I accept this gift? And it's a gift. He had to receive it. In order to receive it, he had to stop calling himself a convict. He had to see himself as something more than I'm a convict. I'm this. I'm. He had to see himself as a better man, like the better man that redeemed him. And he goes on. And the rest of the film, we don't want to give too much away. But from that moment, he starts to see himself redeemable. He's not living in the guilt of his past sins. The world wants him to do that. Others don't want him to do that. The man that chases him through the movie wants to remind him of that because that's all he knows him as is a convict. And he's an enforcer of a law. You're a lawbreaker. He spends the movie going after him because he's a lawbreaker, and right, rightfully so, he can go after him, because he is an enforcer of the law. But the man that had broken the law now sees himself as something more than a man that breaks the law. Now he sees that he has a soul that can be redeemed and can do more than break a law. He can now fulfill the law. 
And he goes to the rest of this movie fulfilling the law, not obeying the law, not breaking the law, fulfilling the law. And what is that? The, the intention of the Torah, the intention of the law is to make us holy, to bring us in a better relationship. The intention of the law is not to make you angry, not to ruin your fun, not to destroy your life, but to enhance it. That's the intention of the law. But if you only do things just on the mechanics of the law, you are breaking the law, even if you're doing the mechanics of the law. You have to have the spirit of the law, else you are a lawbreaker. You know, Yeshua said to the young rich ruler, here is a man who said to him, to Yeshua, well, I've done all the law. I've done everything that was required of me. I did all of the mechanics of the law. And Yeshua said, okay, sell everything you have and give to the poor. What must I do? What must I do, Yeshua, to be saved? Sell all you have, give to the poor. See, he was counting on the mechanics of the law. And many of you read the Sedua for Jewish. You do the prayers. You have the prayer book in front of you all the time, on the train, on the plane, on the bus, in the laundry, in the bath. You're just constantly doing the mechanics of the law three times a day, doing the mechanics of the law. And there are many Christians who are doing the mechanics of the law. You say it's grace. You're doing the mechanics of your religious law. And you just expect what? Oh, I adopted a dog. I went to the shelter and volunteered at the soup kitchen. I, I baked a pie for my sick neighbor. I, I, I prayed for the sick. You're doing the mechanics of the law, not to mention the main thing that Christians struggle with. They consider their, their faithfulness really just going to church. That's the number one thing that comes off their mouth, according to a Gallup poll in the United States. The number one word that Christians say isn't Jesus, isn't Adonai, isn't God. Is church. That's really the gospel. Most of the world, most of the unbelievers, they don't really remember anything about the Christians they meet other than where they go to church, their church. The second most used word of the American Christians, pastor. Church, pastor. By the time you get down to the fifth and sixth most used word, then they mention God. Then they mention Yeshua. He's he's way at the bottom of the pole, by the way. They'll mention Christian authors. They'll mention Christian singers. Jews will mention rabbis. They'll mention other books. They'll definitely mention all the Talmud. They're, they're all over the place before they just talk about Adonai. You'll very hear the seldom hear them hear them mention Adonai, Hashem. No. It's about my rabbi. It's about my synagogue. And so we've lost the spirit of the law. But this man went on to represent the spirit of the law. And he went on to obey the law, but he did more than obey the law. He did more than the mechanics of the law. He fulfilled what Yeshua said to the young rich ruler. Sell all you have give to the poor. Guess what he did? 
obeyed the law, lived humbly and sold and gave to everyone that was less than him. I find it ironic, God bless Liam Neeson. I find it ironic that he plays this role and he had also played the role of Schindler's List. There's something in Liam Neeson and he played the role of Taken. This man in his spirit, unlike James Bond and Tom Cruise, doesn't play roles where he's rolling around in a sack with some woman. He doesn't play roles where he's putting on tights and pretending he can fly. He always plays the redeemable roles. And that you can't help but watch Liam Neeson on the screen and recognize this isn't an actor. This is a man trying to find an artistic outlet of what he really feels about life and how he sees life and his personal beliefs. He plays the role of his own true identity. And so he's not acting. He's giving himself, sacrificing himself. And what a great example. Nobody can play a role better than a man who's not playing a role. Let me say that again. No actor can play a role better than an actor who's not playing a role. When it becomes simply an extension of an artistic expression of who and what they are. And yet so many play a role. They put on kippahs and call themselves rabbis. They're not a rabbi in their heart. They have a title in a Christian church and you say pastor. They're not pastors. They're celebrities. They are self-focused. They live most of the time in the mirror. You know, Rabbi Guy and I are going to do a podcast. It's called The Parrot or the Parent. I had to repeat that. The Parrot or the Parent. I went to a church once and at the end of the service, everybody's in a long line shaking the pastor's hand, telling the pastor what a wonderful service. Oh, how wonderful. He preached wonderful. I had a mouth, an earful of that mess. I said, I'm getting in that line. When they got to him, when I got to him, I said, you are a good parent. Oh, 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 uh, you, you know my children? No, oh, 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 I didn't say parent. Oh, I, oh, no, no, not parent, parent. And he looked like, what? A parent, you know, parents, they only mimic and say the words that they're told to say, that they've heard say. They don't create any new words of their own. And as a result of that, as a result of that, you are a good parent. As long as you do every Sunday what you did this Sunday, I'll come back and hear you preach. But remember, it's God's words, not yours. Just be and continue to be a good parent. Jeremiah, if you promise to speak words that are not worthless, only the words I put in your mouth. Ezekiel, the coal of fire on your tongue. I'm going to burn that mouth, that tongue, that coal, purify your tongue to speak my words. Yeshua, is any of us greater than Yeshua? No. Yeshua, what did he say? I speak no words, but that which my father has given me. And I know most of us, you'll go around quoting all kinds of Christian authors not to mention the pastors. You quote everybody, constitutional forefathers. You quote them all the time, particularly conservative Christians. You can't help but quote the men in all these books you've read in your universities and your cemeteries, I mean seminaries, and yet you think you know God. Moshe, he spoke and gave no credit 
to anyone other than Adonai. So did Yehoshua. So did David. And every prophet, every prophet starts by saying, Thus says Adonai Elohim. Not what I say. You know, there's a great story we, we read in First uh, Kings chapter 21 and 22, where Achav joins Yehoshaphat, we call Jehoshaphat, but his name is Yehoshaphat, and they're ganging together to go against the king of Aram. Now, Yehoshaphat was a righteous king. Achav was the wickedest of them all, but Yehoshaphat had a weak moment and he ganged up with him. And he goes, before we go into war, let's ask what Adonai says. So Achav brings in 400 prophets and they all say, yes, go, the Adonai, give his strength, you're going to succeed and crush them. One of them even shaped iron horns in the shape of a bull and said, this is how you're going to ram them. And, and Yehoshaphat's not buying it. He's like, uh, are there no prophets of Adonai here? <laughs> and I love what Achav says. He says, well, there is one, but I don't like him. He never says anything good about me. <laughs> And, and Yehoshaphat says, well, bring him in. So they call Michiao, and he says, one of the, the guy that was sent to call him tells him, listen, we have 400 prophets there. They're all saying good things. Could you just agree with them? Just, just say what they're saying, and we'll be fine. And Michiao says, I'm only going to say what Adonai tells me. And then he, he walks in there. He goes, yes, yes, go. You'll be, uh, go and prosper. <laughs> and Achav says, how many times do I have to make you swear? Tell me the truth. What did Adonai says? And he goes, oh, so you want to hear what Adonai has to say? Well, <laughs> listen, you go there, you ain't coming back. <laughs> and of course, Enachav gets mad and throws him in the pit. <laughs> but I thought you wanted me to tell you what Adonai was saying, but apparently you didn't. <laughs> you know, that's how the wicked people are. It's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> Yeah, because they don't really want, you know what we always say, the truth is the lie you want to believe. You really don't want the truth. You can't handle the truth. And it's not really that you can't handle the truth. You could handle the truth if you wanted the truth. It's not that you can't handle the truth. Do you want the truth? If you want the truth, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I may ask or think according to the power, his doomness. His power that worketh in us. It's not our power. Zerubbabel said, not by might, nor by power, but by the spirit have I been able to move this rock. David said, by God have I run through a troop and leaped over a wall. Gideon knew we won this battle because of God, not because of me. I'm the smallest. My family is the least. I come from the smallest tribe. I don't have any muscles. I'm not tall. I'm not strong. I'm just a man that's willing to trust and believe God. And then God gets the glory. And speaking of muscles, most people make that mistake every time they draw Samson as if he was some buffed, you know, big guy, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. No, the whole thing about Samson, that he was a skinny guy. <laughs> he was a little guy. His strength did not come from the muscles or else Delilah wouldn't have had to ask him, where does your strength come from? Tell me your secret. No, he was just a skinny guy. And that was the miracle. Absolutely. And think about it. You see the lie that Hollywood and parents have taught their children. All these super Marvel movies. All of a sudden, Spider-Man gets bit by a radioactive spider. And he's got, he's, you know, he's got buff chest and six-pack abs and 
Thor is six feet tall. If anything, that's not a hero. That's a Philistine, a, a son from the seed of Nephilim. And yet you keep glorifying. They put this image of what strength is. Batman with a big chest and chiseled abs, Superman. They tell you the lie. Well, the scripture doesn't say that. If, and yet you don't believe the Bible. You can tell that man wrote the Marvel movies and the Greek mythology because you can see how man makes other men think of strong men. And yet the average man, as Abraham Lincoln said, God must love the average man. He made a lot of them. If you think about it, they try to take the power away from the average man to give the power to the elite men who really do not have the power. So they make you who are not six feet tall, you who are not chiseled and muscled, you who don't have great flowing blonde hair. Jesus wasn't a Thor great flowing blonde hair guy. He didn't look like he could be a model on a magazine, but the image that they tell you, you who are ugly in their view, you who are short, you who wear glasses like Poindexter, they tell you, you are the one that's powerless. You are the one that's not attractive. They tell the women the same thing. And so the women who really are holy no longer think they're holy. It's the women that look like porn stars and prostitutes. And now your sons grow up lusting after the wrong women. Now your men grow up wanting to be, wanting to be the wrong men. But yet in the scripture, the powerful men, like Rabbi said, hey, listen, uh, where'd you get the power? Why would she ask that question? Why would she ask that question? Where'd you get the power? Look at him. Doesn't he looks like the Terminator? No, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. You, I mean, you, you know, you don't look like uh, a Philistine. You don't look like a seed of Nephilim. But, you know, what is, but you're powerful. Yeshua. Why are these people coming to him? He's not good looking like that pastor at that Hillsong church walking out with his tight pants and his tight shirt, his tattooed arm, his muscled bicep. Yeah, that's what you like. And yet if the Lord came, you wouldn't recognize him. He wouldn't look like the, your pastors. And, he did, and they didn't recognize him. And if he came today, you wouldn't recognize him. Even after he came and he said he rode on a donkey, not in a Gulf Stream jet so that you can go and preach your messages. He rode in a donkey. He had no permanent home that he owned like a Levite. He slept where he slept. Now, the story really gets complicated once that cop, played by Jeffrey Rush, who is also Captain Barbosa, so he plays the cop who is so faithful to the letter of the law, yet has no spirit of the law. And he comes to the town where Jean Valjean, Liam Nissan, becomes the mayor, not by his own will, but by the people's will, because of everything he has done for them. They wanted him to be the mayor. They said, well, you're good to us. We want you to be our leader. And he has been taking care of everyone. One guy has an accident. He provides for him, buys him a new horse, gets him a new job. Another prostitute is sick. He takes her in. He feeds her. He takes care of her daughter. Really just a good, humble man. And this guy comes in from the big city and he recognizes him from the prison where he was the, the over, where he was the security guard. And he just could not let him go. And he just starts chasing him down and chasing him down throughout the entire movie. 
while Jean Valjean just tries to do good things. He opens up his soup kitchen. Everyone around him tells the cop he is just the most incredible man, just a spectacular reputation. And later in the movie, actually, while Jeffrey Rush does not know that they're talking about him, he asks his deputy, who is this guy? And he says, oh, everybody says he's a great man. He's just a good-hearted man, does great things for the community. And he wants to actually give him, you know, come in and say something good to him to warn him about something he does not recognize that it's the guy that he's chasing down <laughs> and when he does he, he his mind he just he could not get a hold of it now we don't want to give you too much so if you haven't seen the movie i would say stop listening go watch the movie and then continue because we are going to give you some spoilers right now and how the movie ends because it really ties into the message so Again, if you haven't watched the movie, we suggest you watch it. It's the 1998 version with Liam Neeson. And after you watch the movie, you can come back and finish the podcast. Because what what happens next is that the captain, the cop, he himself gets caught while he's trying to catch Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean has an opportunity to kill him in the midst of the revolution. Kill him and get away with it. And instead... He lets him go. And the cop says, I will come back. You should kill me. Because I am faithful to the law and you are a convict. I will not let you go. Jean Valjean says, go. I do not have the right to kill you. And later, when he does catch Jean Valjean, he could not reconcile what just happened to him. He is like, wait, this guy is the convict. I'm the one chasing him for 19 years now, making his life a living hell. He has a chance to kill me, get away with it, and yet he says he does not have the right to kill me and let me go? And it shook him because he gets to that point where the law just didn't make sense because he did not see the spirit of the law. And that's why Paul says in the letters to the Galatians, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit of the law gives life. He says actually in Galatians 2 verse 19 in the complete Jewish Bible translation, for it was through letting the Torah speak for itself that I died to its traditional legalistic misinterpretation. It was through letting the Torah speak for itself that I died to its traditional legalistic misinterpretation. See, the Torah is not the problem. It's your misinterpretation. So that I might live in direct relationship with God. Not that so that I might be kind to you and kind to him and blah, blah, blah. No, the kindness is a result of your relationship with God, not the other way around. In other words, the relationship with God produces the kindness. The kindness does not produce a relationship with God. And in the secular world, obviously everyone hears that. And most of the church now, you talk like the people in Hollywood. Well, just be nice. Well, just be kind. No, be holy and be godly. The result of that is kindness to your brother, kindness to your sister, which is why so many people in Hollywood and in these churches practice adopting dogs and mowing the neighbor's lawn and taking groceries to the elderly while you have no real direct 
intimate relationship with your heavenly father. It's really quite sad. And it's quite telling. You're trying to justify yourself by your own works. And even people in the Christian church continue. They love saying, we're not under the law. We're under grace. No, baby. You're not under grace, nor are you under the law. And the reason why is you spit on the Torah. You could at least practice the Torah, but you don't. Then you come and say the Torah doesn't matter. The law of God doesn't matter. I'm under grace. And you use grace as a cover for even more wicked sin, more wicked religiosity. You are double the sinner that a Torah walker is or non-Torah walker is. You take the Lord and crucify his sacrifice by attacking the very thing that is the fulfillment that he speaks of. He didn't abolish the Torah, he fulfills it. You see, what you call the new letters reveals what you call the old letter. The old letter points to forward the fulfillment of Yeshua. Yeshua refers to what he fulfilled. And together, you can't have one without the other. Everything that Yeshua did, everything that Yeshua did was Torah. Everything he said was Torah. Blood and Torah, blood and Torah. Blood and Torah. <laughs> that is the truth of God. There's blood and Torah. See, that's the really, that's the love in marriage. The love of God in John 3.16 is the marriage. It married the law of God, which is also love expressed in the law. And that's really the point in the movie that even though he was reformed, meaning he repented, he changed his way, he did teshuva, he was still sinful in the fact that he sinned in the past and he still needed to be atoned for. In many Jews nowadays, they dismiss Yeshua's sacrifice and say that they atoned for themselves by reading about the sacrifices. But that's not what God says. That's their opinion because, well, they have to come up with something because they reject Yeshua and there is no temple or nor is there a high priest. So they dismiss what God says in Vaikra Leviticus 17. It is the blood that makes atonement. And without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, if there is no forgiveness of sins, you constantly carry that with you. And in the movie... Jeffrey Rush, he understands, is like, listen, this guy has been reformed. This guy is actually not that bad of a guy, but he's still a criminal. So what do I do? And he says, the law allows for no mercy. So what does he do? He takes his place. He sacrifices himself so that Jean Valjean might be redeemed. And that is exactly what Yeshua did for us. He says, listen, I'm making a way for you that you can be atoned for because you can try to change your way, but you're still not going to be spotless and blameless. You're still going to have sin in you because we are born in it and we need something bigger and higher than ourselves to redeem us. So Yeshua said, I am the atonement. I am the blood sacrifice to make up for all of the blood sacrifices for all of the sins, past, present, and future. Now, the fact that he made the sacrifice though, does not exempt you from stop sinning. 
What did he tell the woman? I do not condemn you, now sin no more. He made the atonement, but you cannot keep on sinning and saying, well, you know, you atoned for me. That's blasphemy. That is sinning defiantly, despite knowing the law. He atones for your accidental sins, the ones you did not know, sins of ignorance, what is called in the Torah, Numbers 15.15. If you sin accidentally, well, make a sacrifice, you will be forgiven. There's always going to be a sacrifice. So all of those Jews, the ones who reject Yeshua, they are not covered. They have no covering. So it does not matter how many prayers they say. They are not atoned for. Therefore, they are all <laughs> condemned according to their own sins. Now, and, and that's, that's where it gets beautiful because God does have mercy. That's a given. God has mercy, but not for everyone. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So that's when the Jews get divided into the two camps of, do you do this thing out of pure ignorance, despite the fact that you love the Lord with all your heart? Or do you just kind of follow the tradition with no heart for the Father? And that's the covering. And they think about a tent when you go camping, you set up a tent, right? You go to the beach and you see these canopies. They have four poles or four stakes in the ground and the covering over those poles. That's the tent, the tent of meeting. What are the poles? What are the coverings? That's the foundation of God's law. What is the covering? My banner over you is love. See, Yeshua represents the covering of the tent poles, the tent poles of which the covering is held up. Yeshua is held up by the Torah. He's fulfilling the Torah. He's the covering at the top. Those poles are pointing up. Poles point up. Now you've got the covering, the talit. You come under his kupa, under his covering, under his talit, under his pavilion, under his protection. And that's the covering. You can't, the, you, you, you can't not have the covering knowing all you have are tent poles, which are the law, pointing upwards to the covering, but you have no covering, you're exposed. Then you have the Christians who only have a blanket waving tent without anything holding it up. They try to dismiss the Torah, the laws of God. It is the Torah, the laws of God that hold up the covering, the love of God, the banner of the Lord, the banner. You put a banner. It's got to have a pole. We call that what? A flag pole. Can you imagine going into war with just a pole without a banner? Can you imagine a banner, not a pole? You can't hold it up. What holds up the banner? The pole. What good is the pole without the banner? The law, Yeshua. There, there is no contradiction. The Christians don't understand the Torah, dismiss and disparage the Torah. And many of our Jewish friends don't understand the banner and the flag of God's covering, which is the, the Lord's talit. But both of you, when you come together and you see you're not enemies at all, you can't have the one without the other. Can't have, you can't have the one without the other. And as we often say, what you call New Testament is just the letters being written about Torah. Letters being written about Torah. Study the Torah. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. Your King James Bible didn't exist when that scripture was written. 
Yeshua said, you have the law and the prophets. Hello? Yeshua said that. You have the law and the prophets. We say law. The English likes to say it that way. So Torah, you have the instruction. That is, that God is God from Genesis, from Bereshit to Apocalypto, to Revelation. But you have to accept that redemption. You know, when he, when he, get, when he shackled himself and unshackled, unshackled Jean Van Jean and then shackled himself, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. Why? I have been perfect in the law. I'm, I am going to take it. You have redeemed. You have redeemed yourself. You have been redeemed. He was given the grace first by the priest. But that redemption process, the law had to be had to have to sacrifice itself. That's Yeshua. He took it all. He took all of it. He took all of the law, all of the lawbreakers, and he shackled himself to that stake to give us freedom and deliverance. So why are you, many of you, living and guilt, spitting on God's sacrifice. Jean Van Jean didn't go back to prison after that. He didn't shackle himself and become a convict and a criminal. That would have made the death of the officer who had been chasing him and the priest who had given him grace useless. If he had been given that grace by that priest and he went out and raped and killed and stolen, all that mercy and all that grace, you would have doubly wasted your life. So God has given you grace, but you are living under a cloud of guilt, shame, and humiliation. And the only power is when you take that shame and humiliation and you crawl into the lap of grace of God. You crawl like the prodigal son. See, most of you, or all of us, when we are humiliated and embarrassed, we hide and isolate and run away from the thing that loves us. But true repentance, when you are truly sorry, the Bible says godly sorrow worketh repentance to Shuva. It's not enough to be sorry. You're sorry you got caught. Real sorrow turns you away from the guilt and the sin into righteousness. You go back, Father, I have sinned. And be willing to suffer the consequences of your actions. We often say, God removes the guilt, he removes the eternal condemnation, but there are still consequences. For what you've done, you will suffer, and it will only make your walk harder. People that have suffered from sexual addictions, well, don't think just because you gave your life to Yeshua, all of a sudden those urges are just disappearing and, <laughs> and you live as a virgin who never had a taste. Just because you gave your life, you're still addicted. Your body is addicted to drugs, alcohol, you name it. Stealing, it's an addiction. God renews your spirit, but you have to daily be renewing your mind so that you have that progressive sanctification until the day you die which is when you get a new body with a new mind and you are completely restored. But until then, God helps you carry your cross, but he does not take it away from you. Amen. And that's the key. 
carrying our cross. Churches for so many years, and churches, not Judaism, at least they, Judaism does teach that part right, but churches, they turn Jesus into just a nursery school rhyme and some magic mushroom. That is no, you don't give your life to the Lord and now you have no cross. You give your life to the Lord, now you are carrying a cross. You're not carrying it alone. Bear ye one another's burdens. The Lord says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is a cross, but it is a cross necessary for the memory and impregnation of sin that's been coded in our muscles. We're not in the new body yet, people. The soul's been redeemed. The body has not been resurrected. That memory of sin. That's why Paul says, I daily beat down my flesh. You have to, as Job said, make a covenant with your eyes not to even look. Proverbs, don't, when she whistles at you, when she blinks her eyes, don't look at her. Don't stand behind in a grocery store with tight yoga pants all up in the crack of her butt, moving another line. Don't go at all. Go down the other road. You see them coming? Go down the other side of the road. Do everything physically. Physically. Flee, youthful lust. Well, Joseph did. He got out of there. You're in massage parlors, chiropractor offices. Don't let the women put their hands on you in a chiropractic office. Be careful of who put their hands on you. Be careful who's adjusting you. It's not worth it. Leave. Get up. Get out of there. Have some responsibility for your space. Guard your ears. You don't have to listen to everybody. Guard your ears. That's an opening into your soul. You say, you don't listen. No, not to you. Don't thank you. Don't need to hear it. Bye-bye. Guard who touches you. Oh, obviously. That's my secret place. That's my secret spot, you tell your children. Oh, he touched me in my secret spot. Wait, your body is the secret spot? No, it's not. Your mind is the secret spot. And you take any and everything and listen to any. Just because they have an opinion doesn't mean you need to hear it. Guard your ears. Guard your eyes. Guard your secret physical spot. Guard your space. Guard your home. Guard where you walk and who you walk with. It doesn't matter if it's your brother or your sister or your mother, your father. Spirit is thicker than blood. This American tradition of the worship of family is not biblical. It is the worship of God. God called Abraham from his family. God told Gideon to smash his father's statues in the front yard. You've grown up in churches that teach you to worship your family. Now you worship the buildings you go to. Now you worship the men that you call pastor, but none of you worship God. Yeah, and many people nowadays, they're just so soft. They're what we call a yes man. You just want to be a people pleaser. You do not want to say no. Your family invites you to a barbecue, and you know how godless they are. You know they're going to be drinking beer, blasting that godless secular music that I cannot stand. You know what's going to happen. You know what we're going to talk about, how they're going to speak politics and the stock market and, and the, the beach and their vacation. Look, why would you go? And they invite you, and they say, Oh, don't tell us it's that Bible thing. Oh, come on, you can just take a break for one day. Come be with your family. No, you, you have to be strong in your conviction and put your foot down. And God will test you, by the way. You say you love him. Well, who's more important, your family or God? 
family is not God. Yeah, sure, they gave you life, allegedly, but it was God who gave them life. <laughs> it is God who made the soul, not the womb that carried you for nine months. God just used them. In the same sense, you don't worship the doctor who delivered you. So why would you worship the parents? Now, the Bible says honor the parents who do raise you up in the Torah, the parents who are holy. So I'm not saying you got to curse them out for inviting you, but tell them, listen, I appreciate the invitation, but I am faithful to God. I walk with God, with the Lord, with Adonai. I do not participate in those activities. I am living a holy life and I expect you to respect it and honor it. That is my choice. You have made your choice. You know, I told my father the other day, I told him, you've made your life choices. You chose that woman, not my mother. He's been divorced, married another woman, a Jezebel. I told him, you chose that. I chose God <laughs> to each his own. You made your choice. I chose mine. But you have to respect my decisions. And they hate it. They absolutely hate the fact that I don't do those things I used to do with them anymore going out to bars and all, you name it, all of those godless things that the world loves doing. Because we live in that culture. They hate when you don't join them. But they don't think about how you should hate that they don't join you. See, wickedness always assumes that you are one of them. They never give you the benefit of the doubt to ever assume that they will ever be a part of you. In the United States Congress, they called it bipartisan, bipartisanship, where each party comes together and they and they come to some sort of agreement or compromise. But in the last 35 years, bipartisanship in the United States Congress usually means when a Republican agrees with a Democrat. It never means when a Democrat agrees with a Republican. Well, you're not bipartisan. Uh, you, you should be bipartisan. You, you know, ecumenical councils, you know, they have these in all the cities now. Oh, well, let's just come together one world religion. Now you've got uh, meetings in your town square with the Jewish rabbi, with the Christian pastor, with the Muslim iman, with the Buddhist, the Hindu, and God knows all of the rest, and the LGBTQ pastors. And this is supposed to be smiled upon. You see, we it doesn't matter. God doesn't matter. Wait, God, uh, your God is just one of many. Now you've gone back to the Roman Empire, polytheism. Well, one more God, it doesn't matter. You know, people forget that in, in most of the uh, Roman uh, persecution it had nothing to do with them worshiping Jesus. They don't mind you worship. You can worship anything you want to worship in, in a Roman, in Greek mythology and the, the Roman Greco uh, mythology of religion is polytheism. What they don't like is monotheism. You're saying, so you're telling me that unlike India that has over a million gods, you're telling me that there's only one. Well, I, I listen, why can't he be one amongst many instead of one of none? Because one amongst many means we all are right and no one can really tell what to do. And to each his own, your truth, his truth, my truth. But one of none, not one of many, attacks everything attacks everything. It's like the word Comanche, everyone's my enemy. You see, when you are a friend of God, everything is your enemy. Because one Shema Israel, the Lord our God is one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's not Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Mormon, all the other mess you got going on in the United States. The grace of God 
brings us to the law of God. The law of God is Shema Israel. The Lord God is one. One. Yet Hallelujah. And by the way, speaking of what you said about bringing all those religions together, I want to remind you something that happened 22 years ago in a place that had a synagogue, a church, a temple, a monastery, and a place of prayer and worship for all other religions in one building where all the world's religions came together in the worship of what? Money. The World Trade Center. All religions under the banner of money. You remember what happened? 9-11, 2001? The whole thing blew up, collapsed, destroyed. Wasn't a terrorist act. No, it was not Al-Qaeda. It was not whoever they say it was. Sure, they might have been the ones to perform that attack, but it was judgment. And it's the same judgment that is coming on the entire earth very, very soon. Just remember what King Charles did in his coronation. Same thing. He claims to be the head of the Church of England. And yet, at his coronation, he had Buddhists, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, all the world's religions under the banner of what? Climate change, finances, trade, and every other sin and idol of gold and silver under the heavens. So take heed and remember, God is not a joke. The Torah is not a fairy tale. It is sharper than any double-edged sword and it can cut and separate between flesh and spirit. Hell is real and so is the kingdom and Yeshua is coming soon and judgment is coming with him. Repent. When God has had enough, that's when things are gonna start to get rough. When God has had enough, that's when things are gonna start to get rough Hurtful and painful Broken and shameful and humble and Lonely and angry and sadness Me comes to help you To see for the truth you've abandoned The love you've abandoned So back on your back Down on your knees Open your eyes in your heart you will see Call on ye, Elohim mm -hmm. When God has had enough That's when things are gonna start to give up When God has had enough before things start to get rough Before the fire destroys The sword and the blood Curses and plagues The droughts and the flood Your enemy invading No fear is crying Everyone's dying No hope that you're trying Though you 
stop time, you keep denying God is the one, you're hoping the one Alpha, Omega, beginning and In the last beginning and end Who have I but you to depend on to do Rescue me, deliver me, lead me all oh, along I'm calling on you I'm calling on you I'm calling on you God has had enough. God has had enough. 